Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers. Trial Tested is a discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. My name is Dave Paul, and I will be your host for today's episode. Welcome to part two of my interview with David Boyce. Hope you're going to enjoy this talk. We did a part one in which David and I talked for almost half an hour of everything from the drudgery of the practice of law to his journey with dyslexia and strategies he's used to help overcome dyslexia. We talked about developing the ability to listen. We talked about the marriage equality litigation and his very uncommon friendship with Ted Olson, former United States Solicitor General. I hope you enjoy part two. Let's talk about some quick insight into David Boyce. Are you more quick to solution or methodical? Probably relatively quick to solution, but methodical in stress testing it and in preparing it. Loner or collaborator? Collaborator, but there are times when you are all alone. When you are on your feet, cross-examining a witness or answering a judge's question, you can have collaborated to get ready and you need to collaborate to get ready. But once you are at that moment of truth, there's no one you can turn to. Thinker or feeler? Both. I don't think you can separate those. Let's talk about the issue of identity slightly out of the Prop 8 case. Which do you more identify with? Leader, trial lawyer, activist, businessman, legal counselor? I think trial lawyer. I think trial lawyer encompasses sort of all of those other than businessmen. At least the kind of trial lawyer I am, where you're dealing often with very large, complicated, high-profile matters. A part of being a trial lawyer is being a leader because you've got to lead a team, you've got to lead a group, and you've got to lead a team to do things that people are not sort of instinctively going to want to do, like stay up night after night and read and reread and write and rewrite the materials that need to be prepared. I think part of being a trial lawyer, when you try the kind of cases that I try, you know, is being a leader. I think of those, I would identify as a trial lawyer. So let's camp there. It's a, a wonderful area to talk about. Let's talk technical stuff. What do you believe the key is to effective cross-examination? I think that to cross-examine effectively, you need to first understand what you want to get. Second, understand what you think you can get. And third, be opportunistic when you have a chance to get something that maybe that you didn't think you were going to be able to get. The biggest mistake people make in cross-examination is going on too long. The reason that it's the biggest mistake is it's the hardest thing to do, which is to stop when you haven't destroyed the witness and you want to argue with the witness. The thing that you always have to remember in cross-examination is that this is almost always a witness 
that wants to hurt you. This is a witness that is not your friend. It is a witness who is put up there to testify against your client. And the longer that, in general, now there are a few exceptions, but in general, the longer that witness is on the stand, the more that witness is likely to hurt you or at least have an opportunity to hurt you. That's great. That really is. What was it like cross-examining Bill Gates? It was a gift. Not only Bill Gates, but other witnesses in that case. My wife, you know, claimed that I was out paying them to make me look good. You couldn't predict, plan for, or hope for the opportunities that I was given in that case in terms of cross-examination. Bill Gates is an extraordinarily intelligent, articulate, passionate advocate for his position. I had dealt with him in the lead up to the case. And I thought going into my examination of him, that that was going to be the hardest examination of my life. It turned out to be one of the easiest. Why? Because he did everything that a witness shouldn't do. He tried to argue. He tried to evade answering questions, which, as you know, if you've got a patient examiner, you can't evade. All that will become apparent is that you tried to evade, and that just underscores the importance of the answer once it's dragged out. I tell my witnesses, if there's something that is harmful to you, that you know the other side is going to get out of you, the first time that the lawyer asks you, isn't this true? You simply say, of course, and don't give him an opportunity or her an opportunity to build it up, to make you look like you're afraid of it, to make you look like you had to be dragged out of you. I had all the time in the world. I had certain things that I was going to be able to get him to admit, and the harder he made it, the worse he looked. He was represented by good lawyers, really fine lawyers, but I just thought he was terribly prepared. Have you and him made nice since then? Have you guys been in the same, you know, some charity gala or something like that? Have y'all been in the no, same? No, I haven't. I haven't. We have some common interests, but we've never been in the same room again. I think for some period of time, that was probably a good idea. Yeah. You know, he's somebody obviously that has done a lot since. And I think that it will always be a little bit of a mystery to me, particularly with somebody as rich and powerful as Gates. They can be challenging to prepare. Ego is a tough thing to prepare. And most highly successful people have some level of ego. Yep, that's true. And sometimes the only way to get through to them is to tell them that if they aren't going to be prepared, that's their choice as a client but they're going to go down in flames with some lawyer other than yourself. So you said this talking about a witness evading answering questions. You said, if you have a patient examiner, you can't evade. What have you learned that has helped you stay a patient examiner when the witness is evading you, the witness is rude, the witness is aggressive, 
The witness is not answering your questions. The witness is emotional. What do you do to stay patient? Well, it's not that hard because... For you, it's not that hard. (laughs) For me, it's very hard. (laughs) See, I know that I've got all the time in the world. And I know that the more it goes on, the worse the witness looks. One of the things that I say to younger lawyers in terms of cross-examination, if you've got a witness that's being evasive, give them enough rope. If you've got the killer document, don't use it too early. In the Westmoreland trial where I represented CBS in the libel case, one of the things that I knew I could establish from Westmoreland was that he had said to the president and his superiors that there was, quote, light at the end of the tunnel. I knew that because I had a cable from him personally to the headquarters that he reported to that said that. And during my cross-examination of Westmoreland, where he was trying to say that he had not been overly optimistic about the war, because that was what the central issue in the libel case was, whether he'd misled his superiors and the American public about the progress of the war. I said to him, there came a time when you told your superiors that you thought things were going well, that there was light at the end of the tunnel. And he said, no, I never said that. He said, that was too optimistic. And I know people have said I said that, but I never said that. Now, I could have just confronted him with a cable right then, but it would have had, I think, less effect on the jury if I'd confronted him and said, you know, yes, I see that. I forgot that. I probably shouldn't have said that then, but I forgot that. But I spent a little bit of time getting him to repeat how certain he was he never said it and how inconsistent it was with what the facts were, which is why he knew he'd never said it. So that when I actually confronted him with the cable, I think it had both more effect with respect to the underlying issue, but also more effect with respect to his credibility generally than it would have had. So if I've got a witness that's being evasive, you know, kind of nasty even, Westmoreland was never nasty, but I have had witnesses that were that way. That's a gift. And I just want them to keep on giving. Who's the hardest witness you've ever had to cross-examine? Westmoreland. Why? He was first somebody who had dedicated his life to serving his country. He was a patriot in every sense of the word. I was young. He was in his middle 60s, ramrod straight, white hair. He just looked like a commanding general. He was somebody who I think people respected. He was also somebody who was a genuinely decent human being. He was somebody who people, I think, genuinely liked. As I say, I was young. I had a jury that many of whom were closer in age to Westmoreland than they were to me. I could easily have come across as disrespectful. I could easily have led the jury to want to be protective of Westmoreland. But I had to show that he was someone who had misled 
somebody who had lied, in effect. And that was a difficult, difficult balancing act. Were you insecure going into that? I don't know if I was insecure, but I was certainly alert to the dangers. Afraid? No, not afraid, because I had a lot of good ammunition. Like I had my cable. I had a number of, I mean, going back to what we were talking about before in terms of preparation, we had taken discovery of every major military and intelligence agency in the federal government. I had to get you know, the highest level of security clearance in order to see some of the documents that we got produced to us. Some of the documents I had to go to a safe and read and couldn't even take copies of. So we got into the real internal files of the government about the Vietnam War, and we had more information about what had happened and who had known what, when, than anybody up until that point had ever had. I had taken the depositions of Robert McNamara and Helms and people from the CIA, Dean Rusk, who was the Secretary of State. We traveled all over the world taking the depositions of intelligence officers who were still in the service. So we had really prepared the case. I wasn't afraid of the cross-examination. I was looking forward to it. But I was also conscious of the difficulty and the care that I needed to exercise in terms of getting to the point of where I could confront Westmoreland, but getting the jury to understand the context before I did it. Getting into the preparation for trial, I'd love to get your current thinking on a couple of things people do in preparation and just kind of your quick take. Focus groups? I use focus groups. I think they can be useful as a tool. I think that you've got to be careful that you use them the right way and for the right purposes, but I think they can be useful. The cross-examining lawyer at trial having to take the deposition of the witness they're ultimately going to cross-examine. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? You're being brought in to try a case. Do you believe that the lawyer who's going to cross-examine a witness at trial, a big witness, they should be the one taking the deposition of that witness? I think ideally. I think that when you take somebody's deposition, you learn things about them that is hard to really convey completely to somebody else. And if you've done the deposition right, You have developed some relationship with the witness that you can draw on during the cross-examination. I think ideally it's an advantage to have taken the person's deposition. You've learned more about them than they've learned about you just because of the nature of the difference between being the examiner and being the witness. So I think the desirability is that If I'm going to cross-examine a witness, I would like to take their deposition if it's an important witness. However, I don't think that is as important as having the right person do the cross-examination. I think that inevitably, most of the witnesses that I cross-examine at trial, I have not taken their depositions. Current thinking on jury consultants. 
I think, again, jury consultants are worth using. I think they provide you with some insight. You can't over-rely on them. One of the biggest cases I ever tried was a jury trial where I represented Star International, which was Hank Greenberg's private company, against AIG over the ownership of $5.5 billion of assets. We had two good jury consultants. They both recommended that I strike a juror who I declined to strike. That juror became the foreperson of the jury and led them to a verdict on my behalf. So I think that you've got to be careful about abdicating your role, which is ultimately to make the decision as to whether you want somebody on your jury or not. Why didn't you listen to the jury consultants? I'm curious, what led you to veto two pieces of advice from people you hired to give you counsel? I looked at her and I just thought she'd be somebody who would listen to me. You know the people that you're good at talking to better than anybody else. I do well with women jurors who are reasonably well-educated and somewhat accomplished women jurors. You know, Hank Greenberg at the time was a very controversial figure. He had gotten a lot of criticism. This was a person who, by all of the indications, was on the liberal progressive side, somebody who would be likely to be antagonistic to Hank. So, I mean, there were reasons, I think, that they had for taking her off. But I thought she was going to be a strong juror, and I thought she was the kind of juror that I've always done well with, both in my personal life and in my trial work. So I went with my judgment on it, and I think that's what people have got to do. You've got to go with your judgment. The jury consultant is an input. It's a data point that's useful to have, but you don't want to, as I say, abdicate your ultimate responsibility for making the decision. You referenced Hank Greenberg as a kind of controversial at the time. You have had a lot of very high profile clients that some would consider to be controversial. In fact, probably most would. And I'd love to shift to that. And in particular, talk about your representation of Mr. Weinstein and the interrelation with your firm's representation of New York Times, the court of public opinion, moral and ethical tensions. I would love to just kind of process that with you. Sure. You mentioned the New York Times. This was a situation in which At the same time that we were representing Harvey Weinstein, we were also representing the New York Times, and the New York Times was doing an investigative story about Harvey Weinstein. And although Weinstein had other lawyers who were the primary lawyers in dealing with the New York Times, we were also representing Weinstein at the same time. And... The New York Times was unhappy about that, despite the fact that when we took on the representation of the New York Times, we had insisted that they agree, and they agreed in writing in our retention letter, that we would be free to represent people 
adverse to the New York Times during our representation of the New York Times, even to the point of suing the New York Times for defamation. And the reason for that is that when the New York Times came to us to ask us to represent them in connection with a defamation action, we said, we've got a lot of clients who are adverse to you and who we've got to be able to represent. And we can't represent you unless you agree that for matters that are unrelated to the matter in which we're representing you, we can continue to represent them and indeed be adverse to you and indeed even be adverse to you to the point of litigation. And they agreed to that. And that was, as I say, part of our written retention agreement. I think there is a public perception issue as to whether you should do that or not. I think that in retrospect, you know, it might have been better to simply turn down the New York Times representation. We could not have, you know, stopped representing all the clients that were adverse to the Times, the nature of our practice. I mean, so many of our corporate clients are subject to articles that they think are unfair or inaccurate, that we really were not in a position to have abandoned those clients. And indeed, I don't think we ethically could have just to represent the Times. So our choice was either to not represent the Times or to enter into that agreement. In terms of the span of your career, it seems like just kind of without getting through all the details, your career, if you're doing high profile stuff like you have for a diverse client base, you have ethical and moral tensions all the time because you're dealing with high profile issues and high profile litigation. What are the lessons that, you know, now in 80 year old David Boys, if you were to speak to the brand new lawyer, David Boys, what lessons would you share about dealing with moral and ethical tensions? Well, I think there would be several. I think the first thing that I would say is that there are far fewer moral and ethical tensions than most people may perceive. Fundamentally, a lawyer has one choice, and that is whether to represent a client or not. Once you have decided to represent a client, you don't really have any moral or ethical tensions until you have to decide whether to stop representing the client. While you're representing the client, your obligation is to represent that client zealously within the bounds of the canons. You have an obligation of candor to the court. You have an obligation of candor and respect to your opposing counsel. But there's no ethical or moral tension there. If you simply put first your ethical obligations under the canons to the justice system, and second, your ethical obligations to your client under those same canons, and that you remember that you don't appear anywhere in that hierarchy. The hierarchy is the 
justice system and your client, your personal interest isn't there. There's nothing in the canons about protecting your personal interest. And if you keep those three things in mind, your obligations to the justice system first, your obligations to your client second, and your obligations to yourself, not at all, there won't be any moral or ethical tensions during the representation. Now, when you make a decision whether to take a client on and when you make a decision whether to stop representing the client, those are more difficult decisions. And those are the kind of decisions that I think you constantly learn lessons about. You're usually not going to know when you take on a client whether when you're halfway through the representation, you're going to be happy that you did it or not. But you can make a probably better informed judgment about that the more you learn and the more you learn about the client before you make that decision. I think that the decision as to stop representing a client is probably the most difficult decision that a lawyer has. And I think that the caution that I would you know, give a young lawyer is that that decision is not to be done lightly, but it is also a decision that you need always to be aware of that it is a possibility. You can, you know, stop representing a client for a small number of reasons, but they're important reasons. You can stop representing a client and probably should stop representing a client if the client won't take your advice on critical issues. You can also stop representing a client, although this now is a little more complicated, if you decide that the client is simply not someone you any longer want to represent. You can stop representing a client if the client is going to engage in conduct that is forbidden under the law and under the canons, and you cannot be a party to it. There are a small number of reasons, but they're important reasons why along the way you may decide that even though you took the client on, you're not prepared to continue. Let me give you a hypothetical. Yeah. You get a client, you're representing them in whatever format you are, and then ultimately you look at kind of what the client stands for or the way the client is engaging on an issue that's important to you personally. Okay. I'm not talking ethically. I'm talking morally. To use your example, I know Proposition 8 was clearly important to you. The marriage equality, clearly important to you. You encounter a client whose values appear inconsistent with something that's morally important to you personally. How do you wrestle through that tension? I think at the very beginning, that's a factor that I can and am entitled to take into account in making the decision whether to take the client on. Once I have taken the client on, you know, let's say that I, you know, take a client on to defend them in a criminal case, and I discover in the course of that representation that the person is somebody who is harassing people because of their 
sexual orientation. And, you know, somebody who is engaged in conduct that I find abhorrent. I do not have, in my view, the ability to stop representing them at that point if stopping representing them will prejudice their defense. You know, I need to be sure that if I'm going to stop representing them, I can do it in a way that does not prejudice them. If I can get out of it in a way that doesn't prejudice them, then, you know, I may want to do that. But my personal comfort has got to be secondary to my obligations to them that I take on when I ultimately decide that I will represent them in the first place. Two uh, lighthearted things, and then we'll kind of land the plane. Is the rumor that you do not use email accurate? No. What is accurate is that I don't use text messages. And what is also accurate is I am very late to the use of emails and that I still use emails more like letters in the sense that my response time is more the typical response time of responding to a letter than it is most people's responding to emails. How do people within your inner circle, your team, communicate with you? Telephone. Voicemail? No. On my cell phone, there's no voicemail. And if they leave a voicemail at the office, my office will transcribe it and send it to me. Most of us, not everyone, but a lot of us, we learn from how people walk out of hard times, difficult times, whether it's personal or professional. If you were to pick the hardest loss or the greatest failure that you have experienced in your career, I'd love to talk about it and kind of how you walked out of it. No question. The hardest loss is the loss of a child, which I have suffered. And you never really walk away from that. You go on with your life and you enjoy your life, but you never really come to terms with it. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. And you're not the first person to tell me that same thing. What has been your, I don't know if coping is the right word, but what has been your pathway to navigate through that? I think it's just going on with your life, celebrating their life with you. Fortunately, I had almost five decades to enjoy my life with my child before I lost the child. You focus on that. You focus on the children that are still with you and your grandchildren, your family. But as I say, you never really come to terms with it. You move on and you move on in a way that you can enjoy life. But you always have that loss. Final two questions. One is a question I, ever since I started interviewing people, I try to ask is, if you were to give one piece of advice to a lawyer who is 35, they're in the early parts of their career, what piece of advice would you give? Don't forget why you became a lawyer. People become lawyers generally because they're interested in the law, they're interested in justice. When you're 35 and you're in the midst of building a career and a family and a business, you can 
forget sometimes why you became a lawyer in the first place. And I think that it's important to keep remembering that, both because if you don't remember that, you can sometimes let the pleasure and excitement of the practice of law get squeezed out of you. I think that the law is more than a business. It is a business, and you have to be conscious of the business aspects of it. But it's more than a business, and sometimes it's easy to forget that. And I think when people forget that, when they forget why they became a lawyer, they sometimes lose the joy and excitement that they originally had when they first got admitted to the bar and first had their first client and their first trial. Advice you would give to a person in a different age bracket, let's say around 50, they're an established part of their career. They feel comfortable. They know how to be a lawyer. They've had some success as a lawyer. You started your own firm, I think, at 54. What piece of advice would you give to someone who's around 50? Don't be too comfortable in simply continuing to do what you've done before. Continue to learn, you know, continue to explore, continue to try new things. If you're in your early 50s, you've got another 30 years. Please don't to. say that. Please. <laughs> so, you know, you're just at a point where you've learned enough and you've got enough leverage to now really do what you want to do. Again, I would also say to them, just as I said to the 35-year-old, don't forget why you became a lawyer. Explore those things. Try something new and different and keep learning. I learn every day. Every time I do a trial, I learn something. I learned something about the law. I learned something about myself. I learned something about people. Continue to learn, continue to explore. Anything left on your professional bucket list? Whatever the next case is. <laughs> You're saying you do not have plans to stop practicing law in the near future. Now, I'm going to practice law as long as I am capable of doing that. You know, people retire to do the things they want to do, sail, play golf, travel, I'm doing what I want to do. I am sailing. I am traveling. I don't play golf, but I'm also practicing law. I've tried to take my retirement in installments along the way. I've always taken you know, time off to do the kinds of things that I like to do in addition to practicing law, but I don't want to give up the practice of law just to do those other things. Well, I very much appreciate your generosity towards me and the American College in letting us talk to you today. It's been a privilege to kind of press in a little bit, and I wish you the very best in the next season of your life. Well, thank you very much. As you can tell, I enjoy talking about the law almost as much as I enjoy practicing it. And the American College has been a great institution. It's hard for me to think how long I've been a member of the college at this point. Just like it's hard for me to contemplate the number of years I have been out of law school. But I suppose that's a lot better than the alternative. <laughs> that's true. Well, again, thank you, and I wish you the best. Take care. Thank you for listening to Trial Tested. Episodes drop on Thursdays. Subscribe now to catch every discussion. Thank you for listening.